Welcome to the very first episode, the pilot episode, episode 00 of A Few Screws Loose, the podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dan. You can find me on Twitter and IG at I am Dan on Drugs, and I am joined by one, two, three, action. And I am Paul, aka T from Charlotte. You might have heard me on a few episodes of Black Law Podcast. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Screws Loose Pod. And there you have it. This is our pilot episode, first episode. So what we did was um, we decided, well, first we had a few shows over at uh, Black Law and Legalize, where I'm a co-host. A lot of you may know me from there. We touched on mental illness a couple of times. And the response that we got from people was it was overwhelming And we decided we were going to try to have these conversations often, but we didn't want to disrupt the the content that uh, that we put out over there at Black Law and Legalize. So we decided to move it onto its own platform where we can solely discuss mental health issues in minority communities, people of color. And ourselves as well. Both of us have uh, diagnosed mental illnesses. And as the show grows, you'll learn more more about those. And you can also go back and check out the episodes we did over at Black Law and Legalize. We're going to post them here too. But uh, the first episode is I Am Anxiety, where we kind of opened up about our mental illnesses. Things, some of, some of the obstacles we faced getting diagnoses, and then trials and tribulations with medication, pretty much. And we did a follow-up to that called Monthly Mental Health Checkup. And it was more of the same. And we that episode was a little more lighthearted. We told some funny stories about just doing random shit that normal people probably wouldn't do, but it's normal to us. So that's pretty much what we're going to do over here. Um, Just going to Talk about mental illness, how it relates to us, how it relates to our community. Anything you want to add, Pete? Yeah, it's, it's going to be a great, great show, especially for people who may be struggling. Um, if you do have mental health issues or struggle with them in the past, you do know that it's a 24-7, 365 thing. It, it can totally consume your life. Um, so the best way to kind of help is either have somebody to talk to or have a show that you can realize other people may be going through what you're going through. And, um, you know, just we're just doing what we can to try to shed a little light on these issues. And um, hopefully we can do that for some of y'all here. Absolutely, man. And we've both been strong advocates for mental mental health, mental illness awareness in minority communities. But that's not to say that this podcast is strictly for minorities, although that is who we are making the podcast for. However, we are inclusive. So it's. Anybody who, I mean, mental illness knows no ethnicity, knows no class. 
it, it doesn't discriminate. So a lot of the problems that we have, a Caucasian person, a white person, they damn sure have a lot of the same diagnoses. However, it affects us slightly different because of the the cultural differences, basically. So as we as we continue and like I said, grow with this podcast, we'll we'll definitely have a bunch of episodes about how we're affected versus and maybe we can even get some guests to that uh are mentally ill have some of the same um mental illnesses and see how our the cultural differences plays out. So one of the things uh I wanted to just jump right into here is we're gonna start off semi lighthearted but not really is our boy Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson is as funny as it sounds, he's a hero to the black community, especially those of us growing up in the 80s and 90s. A lot of people look at him now like he's a damn caricature, like he's a joke and whatever else people may think. He's a nutcase. He bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. But personally, me, I hold Mike Tyson in high regards. And yo, Paul, what 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 are you feeling towards Mike? Mike was a hero. All of us coming up in the 80s, you know, I, I like to tell the story when the first Mike Tyson fight I really got to see on TV live was when they showed the Buster Douglas fight. Not seeing Mike's videos before, you know, growing up in the 80s, I've seen videotapes, his knockouts, but uh, I got to see him fight Buster Douglas live, and that was over in Japan, and he lost that fight, and I remember I was, I, I was crying. My, you know, my older brother was, was sad, so Mike was a hero to us, and those who may not have been around back in those days, um, especially in, in his prime, they really can't understand how important, you know, and how high regard our generation holds Mike Tyson. It's sort of like how some guys from the 70s, how they hold uh, Muhammad Ali in high regard, uh, you know, after his political issues. So um, Mike is the man. Mike is the man. So um, he's definitely like a Superman to, to a whole community back in the 80s, for sure. Man, and these days... Uh, like from the late 90s on, Mike kind of, in the eyes of the majority, he kind of went off the rails and he started doing and saying a lot of things that would be considered odd and uh, out of character of a normal person. So, I mean, he's often thought of as an uneducated, unintelligent, dimwitted, inarticulate minstrel. And the thing is, I can actually understand a lot of what he's saying when when he speaks and I can hear the brilliance in it. Just his vocabulary alone. He sounds funny when he says his ethith because he'd be like, yeah, that's my boy, Didi. But if you get past that and listen to what he's actually saying, he makes a lot of sense. So um, the first quote I want to get into, and we may even do this segment a few times going forward because it's it's such a he's he's an interesting person, to say the least. He was doing an interview prior to one of his fights. I forget who he was fighting, but uh, he said a lot of things that ruffled some feathers. And one of them is the quote I'm about to play now. But it's just who I am. I sacrificed so much of my life. Can I at least get laid? You know what I mean? I've been robbed of most of my money. Can I at least get a blowjob? That quote is, it's kind of hard on the ears, but I often feel like this. Look, I've never had much. Well, nothing that I really 
cared about, to be real. I mean, I grew up with nothing, got used to having nothing. All I really care about these days, as far as possessions are concerned, at least, is my time, my money, and my sanity. And you can throw my health in there as well. I've given so much of myself to other people. I've done so many things for people that I didn't want to do. I've been bled dry. I've been robbed of all the things that kept me balanced. So, I mean, I I get it. And I do so much for so many people. And like I said, I've had so much taken from me. Too much. At the end of the day. Can I at least get a blowjob? I mean, you've taken and taken and taken. People take from you. People use you. People um, take advantage of you. And, you know, when, when it comes to me, it's like take, 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 take. Very few people give. So, I mean, I get I get exactly what he's saying. And I would like a blowjob <laughs> to be real. <laughs> but I mean, it's. That's that's what he's saying is people have taken from me my entire life, my entire career. Can you give me something that and I, I feel like that. And I also feel like sometimes a blow job is a proper way to say, hey, I appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> Paul, what's your thoughts on that quote, though? I have a similar interpretation of that, too. You know, like you said, it sounds ugly on the surface because Mike was kind of, you know, brash. Not, I don't want to say brash. He was very blunt and he had a. Uh, the very the unique way of of uh, expressing himself, but I feel as though it, people who don't know his story may not realize that you know he was abused as a kid. He was sexually abused. He was locked up. He was bullied as a kid till he started uh, realizing how strong he was, and he always felt as though um, he was the underdog and somebody was trying to take something from him. And if you look at his career, he started off with some great guys around him: Customato, Jacobs. Uh, Caton, you know, all these guys were actually looking out for his best interest. And, um, you know, fast forward when to Don King came, it pretty much became an entourage of people using. They bled Mike dry, sort of like the saying you said a minute ago. But, you know, Mike, Mike came up young. He was, you know, teenager, early 20s, had international stardom. So it was almost like he, you become a slave to your success. Um, you know, Everywhere you turn, somebody's asking you questions, wanting something from you. And typically, a lot of the people that come from poor neighborhoods, when they make it, they tend to overshare. They become over generous. And I think Mike Tyson was pretty much talking to after so many years of that was, you know, I've been giving y'all everything for all these years. You know, I mess up. You spit in my face. Can I at least get this? You know, and and I kind of feel, I mean, you know, you can just fill in those words, blowjob, with anything else. Like, can I at least get 15 minutes to play Xbox? Right. You know, Um, (laughs) but I think that's what he was getting at. It's like, I've been giving y'all everything. Can I at least have this? Damn, you know, I can't do nothing without y'all coming after me or questioning me or or judging, judging how I run my life. Right, right, exactly. I mean, you can even, like you said, replace it with appreciation. I mean, can I at least get some of that? Like, he's not asking for anything that that is of monetary value. Of well, I mean, prostitutes, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) So the second quote I want to get into, and this one was another one of those that kind of outraged people and had people saying, oh, Mike's Mike's done lost it. He He's just, he's he's an animal. I wish one of your guys had children so I could kick them in their fucking head or stomp on their testicles so you could feel my pain because that's the pain I have waking up every day. 
So I remember, I remember when Mike uh, did this interview and people were, like I said, outraged that Mike would even say these kinds of things. And in the black community, our general response is, man, that's just Mike. He crazy. And this is how historically how we treat people in our communities with mental illness. He's just crazy. That's just him. And it's almost in a dismissive fashion, like eh, nothing you can do about that. So the quote didn't really resonate with me until recently, past couple of years. And I can totally relate to what he's saying or what my interpretation of what he's saying is. The pain he feels is really indescribable. The only thing he can think of to convey how he feels is to make him to make you watch him brutally harm your children. And I know what living with an indescribable pain feels like. I'm usually articulate enough to be able to describe whatever it is I'm trying to describe, but I cannot articulate the pain that I feel daily. I can use words like unbearable, debilitating, tormented, or suffocating to um, describe the pain that I feel daily. These words still don't exactly describe how I feel. And that's why this particular quote um, resonates with me. The best way Mike can describe how he felt at that time was to say he would want you to watch him step on your children's testicles. That's a lot of fucking pain. And that's the best way he can convey it. I, I completely understand it. He's not saying he wanted to harm your children. What he's saying is, I want you guys to know how I feel. Uh, Paul, thoughts? Every time I hear that quote, going back to even the first time I heard it, I get a mental picture that I don't like to see. It's like uh, somebody has their testicles on a table and there's a big foot that smashes them. <laughs> and it looks, it looks very painful. Um, you know, I wouldn't have put it in those words uh, <laughs> that Mike put them in. But, <laughs> but I do understand, you know. I mean, like you stated, Dan, it's hard to... You know, get the words out to explain, to express, you know, my philosophy a lot of the time has been after my ordeal is kind of just don't even try because nobody's going to get it. Ultimately, people know what they know from their own experience and people really have a hard time understanding what somebody else's experience are like. But I do understand what he meant. Um, you know, he he wants to he wants people to feel pain. It's not that he wants to literally do it. You know, it's a figure of speech. You know, the funny thing about Mike Tyson is when everyone else says things that are figures of speech or are hypothetical, it's laughed at or just kind of accepted. When he says things, it's like, oh, my God, Mike said that. I kind of think that that was the early days of this whole fake outrage thing. I think they knew that Mike was good TV. It's like, what is Mike going to do or say next? And Mike Tyson didn't disappoint. However, though, I do kind of, you know, chalk a lot of that up to his medications. And I'm pretty sure we'll touch on meds uh, at some point. But medications, if someone doesn't know when, you're, when you have a mental illness, especially if you're not stabilized yet, it is hard to find a good combination. And they can have some strange effects on your mental status and kind of make you say some really weird things. So uh, I kind of think that may have had something to do with his choice of uh, description <laughs> of his pain. But uh, I do relate. I do know what he means. Man, and now that you say that too, I can think of a more recent um a more recent situation and that was 
I'm sure most of you seen last year saw Tyrese on, I guess, Instagram, and he was basically going nuts. He was talking about Will Smith and Jada Smith uh, gave him $5 million to stay off the internet. He was going through a custody battle. He was twerking in front of a damn Transformer statue at his house. (laughs) And honestly, yeah, it was a shit show and it was entertaining. Everyone laughed. And I think part of the reason people found it so hilarious and rather than disturbing is as a society, we love to see people who are held in high regard, such as entertainers, athletes and whatever. We love to see them just have a complete fucking meltdown. I mean, that's how TMZ basically was formed, in, in my opinion, at least. Tiger, Tiger Woods. They, they relish, uh, you know, his struggles over the last 10 years. And, and, you know, he's another example of people. They build you up and tear you down. Yeah, exactly. And that, uh, f- like, after the first video, when Tyree started crying in the phone, talking about, what more do you want from me? From me. <laughs> It was the first few times it was laughable because it was totally unexpected. And then you're trying to figure out, I mean, in the social media age, Paul just sent me a clip uh, earlier today with some dude like trying to act like he was in jail. He set up some bars in his bathroom. It's like you don't know what's real, man. What's people doing for attention and what's real? So that's I want to know where he got those bars. Man, that nigga got them joints from Michaels or some shit, man. <laughs> Be like, yeah, if we paint them white, they look like bars, and then I could wear regular street clothes and say I'm doing life. Hey, man, I did paint and sip with some jail bars and put them in his bathroom. <laughs> hey, man, get the fuck out of here, man. Like, <laughs> people smell bullshit a mile away, and we're in an age today where we don't even believe the real shit that we see on the internet, and... I mean, rightfully so, because there's so much fake shit out there. Like, uh, like even going back to Tyrese, when he was crying in the phone, I'm like, nah, he doing this shit for attention or publicity or something. But it turns out he was on a cocktail of medication and the medication he was on wasn't the right medication for him. And yes, medication can have you doing some crazy shit. For instance, Paul has an experience with uh, Klonopin. I took Klonopin. I didn't have the same experience. It actually worked well for me for for a while. So, uh, Paul, what what was your experience with Klonopin? Well, first, I'm going to say in regards to Tyrese and medication, another way to, to kind of explain it is when you're going through the, the trial and error period with medications, these things can have you doing things that you really think are a good idea at the moment. You know, at some point, Tyrese thought, yeah, this is, this is going to be a good idea for me to get on Instagram where people don't really see me much anyway and then just start crying and name dropping people saying they gave me money. And he thought it was a good idea at some point. Now, I'm not saying Tyrese thought it was a good idea. It's sort of like when you say people say it's the alcohol talking. Well, you know, it must have been the the uh, the, the benzos talking because, um you know, those things have you tripping. Clonopin is a benzo and it's a, a very uh, potent benzo. And I was on it for a little while when I was going through my ordeal of trial and error for a very long time. And it was it was like a roller coaster ride. I mean, that stuff, I've never been a self-harming person. I've never been a suicidal person at all. And a side effect of clonopin is self-harm. So um, I noticed I was just, you know, I'd have 
I wouldn't mind having a couple cuts here and there on my face, you know. And when I stopped, when I told the doc, I stopped taking it, and it went away. And um, you know, that clonopin made me hyper aggressive. Uh, make you it pretty much makes you lose your inhibition, and that's not always <laughs> not always a good thing, believe it or not. <laughs> Especially when you're an adult, and uh, you know you need other adults for your success. So that's something that I had to get off of. But like Dan was saying, you know, I'm, you had a totally different. Uh, you know, experience with clonopin. Yeah. My my experience was very mild in comparison. I I benefited from clonopin for a little while. Um however, Zoloft, Zoloft had the effect that Paul just described on me. And Zoloft is considered a mild antidepressant. And I was prescribed that for my anxiety disorder. I believe I was taking twenty five to fifty milligrams a day. It got to the point where I'm cussing out cashiers like I'm up in her face, like finger in her face, cussing her out because she scanned something twice. And I'm sure she was going to fix it. But before I even gave her the opportunity to fix it, I'm like, yo, you got one fucking job. Scan shit and put it in a bag. How do you fuck that up? And like I was going in on her. And I want to say a couple of days later, I cussed a cop out like the cop got on his bullhorn and told me I could turn on red. And I'm like, no shit, motherfucker. Cars are coming <laughs> like you dumb bitch. But the just the fact that I would roll my window down, stick my head out of my window and cuss a cop out. I knew something was wrong right there. So, uh, Paul, how was your experience with Zoloft? Or do you, you do have experience with Zoloft, right? I have experience with all of them. They they put me on all kinds of stuff, and it, it was terrible. I was on max doses. I was on 100 and 150 milligrams of Zoloft. My stomach was hurting. I had sickness. Uh, I was on Trazodone. I was on, uh, what, Theraquil. I was on um, Valium, which actually was the most effective. I was on Ativan. Uh, what's, the, what's the rest? Enderol. So I have experience with a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I've had similar experiences as Dan, you know, said, um, you know, I was a member of a gym back home in uh, the D.C. area. And um, some guy at the gym, some older dude was you know, accusing me and uh, one of my friends at the gym that worked at the gym of looking at women when we were just standing there talking to each other. So he said something smart to us. He's an older black dude saying, y'all young black men should be ashamed of yourselves and this and that. So I went off. I cussed him out. I followed him to the front. I put my finger on the back of his head. I, you know, I, I, I went all in. And I found out he was a major general at, that, at, at the time, and I didn't care. And I told him, I'm not under your command. You don't talk to me any old kind of way. And then uh, he left. And he tried to apologize the next day, but I just said, fuck you. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't have done that if I wasn't on all those meds. And I, for, to put it simply, I was always ready to fight. Right. I told a story on black law. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into it today, but I'm sure you'll hear about it at some point on this series about me in the tow truck yard <laughs> and a Mexican standoff. So uh, it, it, it can have some undesired effects where you really, if, if you're a, put it this way, if you're a, a fight person in the fight or flight response and you're a fight person and you have these meds, it only enhances that fight response. Right. And that's, that's a problem with, uh, but the both of us, believe it or not, we are trained fighters. I mean, we're old now, of course, but in our day, in our primes, and Paul was like in his prime at, at the time he was cussing out the major general. It when you when you're trained to be able to 
defend yourself, to be able to hurt other people, that makes being on the edge and, again, the wrong combination of medications. Look at the dude. Now, I'm not excusing his behavior whatsoever. What was the dude's name? War Machine, the MMA fighter? Oh, yeah, the guy who uh, beat up his girlfriend. Right, and then he fucked the dude up, too, and it's like, I'm not excusing him whatsoever for his behavior. However, that that's the type of danger that you're looking at when you have people that are trained. Now, we're, we're trained in the sense of boxing. We both grew up boxing, boxed each other. It You don't do as much damage, I guess, boxing, because boxing is a very controlled sport. A lot of people think, you know, it's just swinging and punching and trying to hurt people. Not really, but... But that being said, we do know how to strike people. We do know how to slip, uh, move, defend ourselves, keep our balance, and deliver maximum force with minimum effort. So being on the wrong combination of medication, being hyper-aggressive, it's just not a good look because we can we can really literally hurt somebody. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to sound like some badass or like, yeah, you know, I got it like that. No, it's a scary feeling to know that you you're capable of harming someone who is an untrained person in in combat, pretty much. Uh, That's true. It's sort of like when um, I always get irritated when people want to talk gun control and say, oh, we need to have more people educated on how to use their firearm. And I always laugh and say, you know, the people that are killing people, they're not killing them because they don't know how to work a gun. You know, education is not going to make someone think twice before they murder someone. So to me, I think a lot of the you know, people saying we got to teach more people how to become comfortable with firearms, I think that's also one reason you're seeing these mass shootings have such high casualty counts now compared to how they used to. I mean, that guy, in, I forget, I think it was in California, I can't remember, yeah. had a, a, a Glock. It, was no, it wasn't an AK-47 or a, 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 what's that gun, AR-15. Yeah, I think he, had, he, he modified the Glock to be automatic, but... He's efficient. If you know how to shoot, you can take out a lot of people with max efficiency. So I say that to say this. People who have mental problems, it's sort of like when the person has a handgun. And when you have a gun, anyone who owns a gun, probably, if they don't admit this, they're probably lying. You tend to be a little more willing to confront, to, to not back away from a confrontation because you have confidence that you have a weapon. Well, when you're a trained fighter, it's similar. You, do, you know, you may not have a weapon, but at the same time, you can get yourself in trouble because you feel as though you are the weapon. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and the thing is, though, there are other people out there with actual weapons. And that's when that whole uh, fight response that we naturally have that is enhanced with the medications can kind of bite us in the ass because now you're ready to fight somebody and they pull out a gun. Yeah. Like, damn. Man. And that that's going going moving to the next point with that is. A lot of people may not know this about me. Um, Well, I'll speak for myself is I'm a licensed I'm licensed to carry a concealed firearm on me. And for the longest I did, I did carry a gun on me. I kept a Glock 27 on my hip at all times or in my truck, in my car. So not only do I have the whole aspect of knowing how to fight pretty much. So like Paul said, someone else pulls out a weapon. Nigga, I got one of those, too. And I think I'll quote somebody and saying, nigga, you think they stopped making guns when you got yours? So 
So, yeah, man, it's I stopped carrying my gun and I, I want to. Well, I'll let Paul speak for himself, but he did give me the idea that, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it to be on the edge all the time. Like my disorder is anxiety disorder. So to me, everything is a threat. Everyone is a threat. I can't walk around in good conscience with a gun on my hip, knowing that I believe everyone is a threat. That's just that's a recipe for something bad to happen. So I stopped carrying my gun. Yeah, I used to have multiple firearms as well. I sold all of them. Um, I had two thirty eights. I had a Glock thirty. The best to me, the best gun ever made. The Glock thirty. It's forty five caliber. I've been wanting that ever since. I I, I love it. I, I I love that pistol. But I sold it. And I remember even when me and Dan would carry, I never had a concealed carry. I'm from Virginia. I used to be able to open carry, and it was actually, to me, easier, you know. But um, I remember I used to talk to you, Dan, and you would leave your, your gun cocked, and I would always say, I don't leave mine cocked. One, I didn't have a holster. I was one of those dummies that walk around with it in my waist. Um, there were times when I would walk around. <laughs> there were times when I would walk around with my 45 revolver, with my 35, uh, 35, I'm sorry, with my 38 uh, nickel-plated Colt uh, in, in my, uh, no, Smith and Wet, what was that, a model, what was that, what was that gun, a model? Model 6, wasn't 10, it? Model 10, I think. I would walk around with my model, my nickel-plated Model 10, which is huge, and I would walk around with my Glock 30 in my other side, and then I would have my small snub-nosed 38 in one of my pockets. Are you sure you got enough? You can never have enough, brother. So I, I, I used to look like a fool. Um, so I stopped carrying. I sold all of them. You know, I had multiple confrontations where I was readily, you know, I was eager to pull the weapon. You know, I didn't pull it on anyone and aim it at them, but I have pulled it out and had it behind my leg, slightly concealed just in case something happens. And when you get to that point, you know, over minor things, you realize this is not a good idea. Yeah, man. I And I can relate to that as well. I've pulled, I've never put my gun in anyone's face, but uh, two times come to mind. There there may have been other ones that weren't as memorable. I was sitting at a gas pump at uh, a Chevron in Kenner, Louisiana. I used to be a smoker, so I would park at a pump, run in to get a pack of cigarettes, and I, it's just easier to park at a pump. So, as I'm coming back to my car, I get in my car and I'm packing the cigarettes, slapping them, you know. The dude in front of me, like, he starts beeping his horn and making gestures. So I'm looking at him like, nigga, the pump is open. What, what the fuck? Who you beeping at? So he sticks his head out the window and says, move your car. So I just look at him like, Psh, I ain't moving my motherfucking car. You got enough space. Move your motherfucking car, nigga. So I stuck my middle finger up at him like, fuck you. Well, after I did that, he put his car in park, and I'm like, okay, shit, we can get it in. And uh, mind you, I'm in my 20s at this point, but I'm like, okay, we can get it in. All four doors open, and I didn't expect to see four niggas climb out the car. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, I see where this is going. So I reached down to my seat. I grabbed my pistol, and as Paul said, I always keep one in the uh, in the chamber. Glocks don't have safeties either. So, and, they have a very, and they also have a hair trigger. Man, I love their triggers. <laughs> but the dudes walked up on my car and they looked down and I'm looking up at them with a, as a matter of fact, look on my face with my Glock in my hand. They looked down, saw my pistol. They turned around. I was like, nah, man, you got it, man. You good. You good. I don't even think they got gas. 
And the second time was I was at a car wash and Paul used to hate these things because when we used to ride around, I would always go to one of them. Do it yourself. You put all them quarters in there and spray your car. You would do that in Virginia in the middle of winter. Yeah. (laughs) And and (laughs) down here, too. (laughs) Do that shit in the middle of a thunderstorm, man. That's part of my OCD shit. But uh, I was at one of these car washes late at night. It was probably about 1130 at night. And I see a dude like coming through one of the bays peeking around the corner. And I just so happened to have my my pistol on my hip. So I'm like, shit, nigga, you don't know what you about to walk into. So he was walking with somebody else. I saw a dark shadow. So I'm like, okay, there's at least two of them. So the dude comes, he walks through one of the bays, peeks around the corner, sees me, then walks to the other end of the bay, opposite of where I was standing, and comes into my bay. And as soon as he did that, I pulled my pistol. Like, I lifted my shirt up, put my hand on the the handle of my pistol, and I'm like, what? Oh, oh, it's my girl's birthday. I was just trying to see if maybe you was trying to give her a couple of dollars. And the person he was with was a female and she had money like pinned to her shirt. That's some weird shit that these country niggas do, man. I don't, they like pin dollars to their shirt. So I'm like, nah, man, get your ass out of here. All right. And he sure enough left because I made it perfectly clear what was going to happen if he come if he came any closer. So to say that, I'm just going to say now, if something like that was to happen, if I'm at this car wash, someone's peeking around the corner you know what? I'm just going to jump in my car and leave because it's not worth it. Whatever you want to take from me is not worth me killing you. If you want to take my car, if you want to take my wallet, if you want to take whatever you want to take from me, it's not worth me killing you or me dying for either. So I guess that comes with maturity. I mean, how how do you feel about that, Paul? It definitely comes with maturity. Um, like, like we stated, when you had those pistols, if there is a way out of a situation, you're not going to use it. You're like, shit, I got a pistol. What? You, what? you know, and, and, and the problem with that is, you know, yeah, you may be able to use it in self-defense. Yeah, it may be legally registered to you. But we all know what happens in that court system. It is not a guarantee. You know, we, one, we all watch First 48. Two, we all watch the news. So we know how you can be totally in the right. But the way things facts are presented you can be locked up and you can end up going to jail for the rest of your life just because you defended yourself as opposed to let me just leave. You know, one thing that I've learned as an adult, and that was very hard for me as a child and young adult, was how to, to be patient, how not to get angry. I remember as a kid, I would hear these people say it takes a bigger man to, to not fight than it does to fight. And I always thought that was bullshit. I was like, shit, I ain't no bitch. <laughs> and, you know, when I, was in the fire, when I was in the fire department, I had to get used to calling people sir in the academy, and I didn't like that. That was, that was hard for me. You know, I was ready to, to, I confronted people with, you know, they had minor slights, and I would confront them with aggression. And it took me a long time to learn how to be patient. And I'm glad I learned those lessons early on, because when I developed the disability I have now, the PTSD, bipolar 2, all that comes from the PTSD. If I didn't have that patience, especially all the wrong that was done to me and the, the issue that I still have on a daily basis just trying to get through, I wouldn't be here now. No mm-hmm. joke. It, it, is, it is, you know, I guess kind of talking, going back to the original subject of mental illness and like we did on, in our, you know, opening, and, you know, talk about helping people. It, it's kind of like you have to really know yourself. People who don't have control 
or people that struggle more so, a lot of those people have issues, you know, with, uh, you know, looking at themselves and identifying their flaws. Anybody out here with going through anything, having mental issues, I highly recommend you the first step. The first step to getting better, or, well, I don't want to say getting better. The, be- the first step to a better quality of life is you got to be honest with yourself and you got to look at your flaws, you got to look at your triggers, you got to look at your issues, your temperament, and you got to try to fix those things because if any negative traits you have, it's going to be magnified with, with, with mental illness. So uh, you just got to be careful, man. So you know, like, like Dan stated, got, doesn't carry that gun anymore. I sold all of mine. And that, that's that, you know, potential problem averted. Yeah. Um, and that's just how you have to be. You, gotta, you have to make some sacrifices for the bit greater good because uh, you know, even though you may not like yourself, you got a lot of people out there that do. And you can't be getting yourself removed from their life because of a bad mistake. Yeah, exactly. But one thing I'll just add to that before we move on is I still got a lot of guns in my house. If any one of you niggas want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a bow and arrow. I can shoot, too. I'm like Hawkeye. Man, this nigga like a walking, walking dead dude, man. Yo, before we go any further, I wanted to take a minute to make a podcast recommendation. This week's recommendation is The Awakened Soul Podcast, hosted by our pod brother, CEO Hayes. What's up? It's your boy, CEO Hayes, host of The Awakened Soul Podcast, a weekly podcast for an insightful and vivifying look at music, movies, TV, pop culture, but more importantly, how it all relates to us culturally and globally. The Awakened Soul can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, iHeartRadio, basically Anywhere the podcast can be heard, you can find The Awakened. So we also air in syndication on the radio in several states. I'll be looking out for you guys. The Awakened Soul Podcast, hosted by the one and only CEO Hayes. Peace. But yeah, definitely in a future episode, we'll, we're going to get more into medications and reactions and, and things of that nature. And like Paul said, knowing yourself, uh, learning who you are, then you have to relearn who you are after you become mentally ill. I mean, the worse it gets, the more you change. So, you know, you're, you're constantly learning about yourself. Let's jump off into something uh, that people may be able to actually benefit from. Um jobs. There's a lot of jobs out here that have high high rates of mental illness, high rates of people that are depressed, suicidal or even commit suicide and you know just just mental illness as a whole. There's there's a ton of these jobs out here. So what I like to do uh Paul has some stats and I want to like take a look at the top 10 and kind of break those down. Yeah, the CDC actually compiled the list of uh the most uh, dangerous or the worst jobs that, you know, trigger the most mental health problems. And this is an interesting list. Some jobs are obviously expected. Some jobs I've, well, one job I have had and is why I have my disability now. And other jobs you may not have known. So um, before we kind of go into it a little bit, I'm just going to name the top six. And the reason why I'm naming the top six is because fire, police, and protection workers, you know, even like military, they fall at six. Um, they're not far behind other jobs, though. So they break this down by, you know, um, 
on out of out of one hundred thousand employees, how many of these people kill themselves per one hundred thousand? Now I'm gonna start with number six. Number six is firefighters, police, corrections officers, and others in protective services. Number five is architects and engineers. Number four, production and factory workers. Number three is mechanics, maintenance workers, repairers, etc. Number two is builders, carpenters, miners, and electricians. And number one is fishermen, farmers, lumberjacks, and agricultural forestry. And they have 85 out of 100,000 100, employees in that field commit suicide. So um, just kind of a brief going over that list before we get deeper into it. Some of these jobs are expected, but I'm pretty sure some of these were kind of uh, may, may catch a couple people by surprise. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. So I would guess the one that probably caught me by surprise the most is going to be probably fishermen, farmers. Nah, nah, because I can see that because of the the um frequency of work. So builders, carpenters, miners, and electricians. That That's going to be probably out of that list the most shocking to me. Well, you know, the thing is, out of those six, many of these have the same issue in common. And, you know, I did some research into why some of these are. You know, another example is in England, they say that construction workers are the number one highest suicide rate. The problem is with fishermen, lumberjacks, with builders and carpenters, with mechanics, maintenance workers, repairers, um, and architects and engineers. Well, let, let me let me remove architects and engineers. Um, with those other jobs, like in the forestry and the wildlife, the issues with those are those jobs don't always come around. The the solid there's a lot of solitude solitude there. There's it's hard backbreaking labor. Many of those people in those fields aren't financially well off, and also at the same time, the jobs aren't always guaranteed. Especially if you're say a carpenter, uh, you know, a fisherman, you may not catch anything and you may miss your haul and you, you know, you may be out of out of the money for a whole season. That can destroy your family. Shit, the B, um, you know. BP oil spill. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. So you got a lot of people who, you know, the shrimping business and all that. That's big. Um, I, I tried to buy some shrimp, some Gulf shrimp here. We always heard about Gulf shrimp. That's the one with the least mercury. Uh, the, the guy who owns the seafood shop here in Charlotte said he doesn't get Gulf shrimp anymore because uh, even though the oil's not at the surface, it's down the bottom, and that's where the shrimp and the crabs are. So that is the main reason why fishermen, you know, the number one, two, and three jobs, the mechanics, the fishermen, the builders, carpenters, et cetera, why they have a high suicide rate because they struggle a lot. And when your job is not guaranteed and it's contingent upon, uh, uh, you know, supply and demand, I can see why they would have an issue with depression and even suicide. Yeah, man. Architects and engineers, I would say now this is me, no research Would that would that would suggest, I think to be able to create anything, you have to be slightly not your, your elevator doesn't travel to the top floor. There's something wrong with you. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but you look at some of our greats like Picasso, Beethoven, um, you know, people who just create great things, Michelangelo. They, Van Gogh. Yeah, Van Gogh. It, perfect example, Van Gogh. Um, they all tend to have something mentally that's not quite right with them, but that's that that's how they that's how they create. So I will put architects and engineers into that box with like people designing we were just talking about this the other day, designing the um Greek Orthodox Church. Or the the one in D.C. I mean, if you look at some of that architecture, that that shit is just amazing. But 
in order to get to that point to to create and design something that amazing, you, I can see how you wouldn't be right in the head. Yeah, and you stated that, you know, that's a good point about creativity because architects and engineers are number five. They're followed right behind firefighters, police, corrections officers. Um, but number seven on that list kind of goes into the architecture thing and the creativity. Number seven highest suicide rate is artists, designers, entertainers, athletes, media. And, you know, I think that can kind of be lumped in with architects and engineers because those are both creative jobs. Yeah. Um, but in the but the firefighter, police, corrections workers, et cetera, they're right behind architects and engineers with 31 out of 100,000. And architects and engineers of 32 out of 100,000 um, commit suicide. So, um, you know, these, I mean, at first glance, these jobs may seem like, man, I would love to, to be a fisherman. You know, it's, it's not like when we go out on a boat or on the pier to go catch some fish for fun. Now, these people, it's an industry, and it's highly competitive. And if you don't catch, you don't get paid. So um, once you start to actually look into these jobs and careers and what they entail and how they're paid, it, it actually makes a lot more sense uh, when you start to think about those things as opposed to at face value. Yeah. And same same for athletes, too. Athletes, I mean, once once their career is over, it's like, what do you do when that's all you knew how to do? So I can see right there. And then with the NFL, you got the whole CTE um the CTE stuff it's like you kind of fucked up in the head from the CTE but still when you're 30 years old and I'm going to use Paul as an example how old were you um when you left the department 28 I was 27 years old 27 years old so that's honestly that's about the lifespan of a NFL running back about 4 or 5 years so at 27 he's done working that's it all you knew up until the age of 27 is football. That's all you did. That's all you were good at. And that that's, again, all you know, that's what you love. And you can't do it anymore. So I can see how that would lead to a deep depression. So, uh, Paul, firefighters and police. I mean, um, your knowledge of just public safety in general is way, way beyond mine. So what are, what are some of the things in that field that would cause the suicide rate? to be as high as it is. My career was firefighter. I, you know, I was in the fire department for eight and a half years, you know, and, and that's why I'm not working now. I, issues with mental health dating, you know, being caused from that career. And the thing about that is, you know, one, most people, I love when people say, oh, y'all firefighters got it made. You only work 10 days a month. And then when you tell them we work 72 hours a week minimum, that's a little different. Um, you know, you see pretty much when, you, when you're in that field, the only people you can talk to are people in that field. And typically you don't talk to other people about things you see or do in that field because of the stigma. My stigma, you know, the stigma hit me hard and it is, it's real. So when you don't have an outlet, when you see the worst things that you can possibly, that people can't even imagine right under their noses, you know, you see a peaceful neighborhood, but as a firefighter, you kind of see the underbelly of it. You see all of the horrible things that happen throughout a course of the, the course of a normal day that nobody else sees, you know, and then you have to go to an emergency. You may get called out eating lunch. You may go run somebody who got shot in the head and then you come back to the station and then you reset and pretend like that call didn't happen. And you may go out and run somebody who got killed in a car accident. Then you come back to the station and you got another 15 hours left to work. And then you may go on a, a, a rape, a, a fire or anything or drowning. So, 
you run everything. You see the ugly, harsh realities of life. You have to deal with grieving family members and, 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 and irate people. Then not to mention the fire side of it, you have to deal with almost dying or possibly dying just doing the job. You know, so it, it's a lot to it that can really screw you up. And then when, a lot of time when you, when, when you don't have anyone to talk to, that stuff bottles up. Because right. you can't talk to people at home about that because nobody wants to hear about that. And that's just the ugly reality of it. So, you know, I've seen some lists where firefighters and police actually hire up. Um, you know, I guess different sources have different criteria, but um, right. it's consistently in the top seven or eight. And on this particular list, firefighters, police, corrections workers are, are, are number six. Yeah, they all see a lot of fucked up things. I know a lot of correction corrections workers both uh formally and informally but yeah they they see a lot of fucked up shit too inside of these uh facilities man but uh going to number let, let's do number 8 through 10 now uh yeah sure, was, num- num- these are the ones that are kind of more surprising um number 8 is computer uh, no I'm sorry we did number 7 all right so number 8 all right number 8 is computer programmers mathematicians and statisticians <laughs> i don't know why um, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't know anything about computers. I'm just going to be open. Dan is the computer guy. I don't know anything. Uh, but number nine is transportation workers. I can understand why that would be. You're typically on the road all the time by yourself. Uh, you know, it's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure dealing with the public. You know, you, you also have to keep everybody safe and that's a lot of stress. That's a lot of pressure. So I can see why that would be on the list. Um, and number 10 is corporate executives and managers advertising and public relations. I can understand that, too, because especially if you're a corporate executive or a manager, uh, you know, you, you have the responsibility of pleasing your shareholders. And if you don't meet certain goals, you will be out of a job, you know, before you know it. So that's, an, mm-hmm. that's a position that's always filled with stress and tension and uh, uh, mystery because one good quarter, you know, can turn around into a bad quarter and you can be out of luck. Yeah. Man, I can I can speak to computer programmers, math well, not mathematicians and status status whatever the fuck. <laughs> Statisticians. Um, I can speak to computer programmers. I'm not a computer programmer, however, I am an IT professional and I've worked in IT majority of my adult life. In order to be I'm a just say a good computer programmer or good good with computers in general the way we grew up we didn't grow up with computers in the house in every room um walking around with iPhones and all kinds of mobile devices it was rare for people to have computers growing up when we did so you really had to display an interest in technology in order to even get your hands on one and be able to learn how to use them most people that I know that are great programmers, they have shitty fucking people skills. They don't have very many friends. They don't they're not good at social interaction. And I can speak to those two things even in my position. It's like you prefer to work with the code. You prefer to work with the machine. When IRC was a big thing, uh, internet relay chat. That was before like the chat rooms and the instant messengers. You would, you would get with a group of like-minded people and you know, they were called the nerds and whatever, but most of them had the same 
common personalities, I guess you could say. And that is they dislike people. You picture them as how people clown around and say someone sitting in their mom's basement, all fat and sloppy with food all over the place. Yeah, that's probably a good way to describe most programmers back in the 90s and early 2000s. You you had to really be deep into it. I'm not sure if anyone's ever played Sims. You ever played Sims, Paul? Played who? The oh, Sims. Oh, yeah. You remember when we were playing The Sims uh, when I came to New Orleans years ago and I built the walls around your dudes and killed them? <laughs> what did you do that to me? I don't know. That, that sounds like something both of us would do, man. I just built them. I invited you in my house and then I built four walls around you and then I took took your wife and then I moved in and you were just you know, in a wall dead. <laughs> man, but... I, I liken that to to being working in technology. You live in a virtual world. The real world doesn't make sense to you. Code makes sense. Code is like much like math. It's um it's absolute. There's too many variables in the real world. There's too too much unexpected stuff. There's too many nuances. Code is what it is. Much like math. And I, now I'm I can kind of link link mathematicians in there i can see everything makes sense but outside of this it doesn't so yeah i can see it man like you're happy when you're in front of your computer and you're doing code or doing whatever you're doing but at some point you can't you can't sit in front of your computer 24 hours a day you have to get out here into the real world and the more time you spend in front of your computer the less time you spend in the real world the worse the real world seems so people would sit there and they would play Sims for shit hours on end, like 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 hours a day. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see it, man. I think you, you kind of raised a good point that I was just thinking about. I think some, I can I can honestly say that I believe some of these uh, jobs that we listed, you know, that are on the CDC list that with the high suicide rate, you kind of made me realize that I think some of these jobs have these rates because these jobs even though it may be counterintuitive for someone who suffers from disabilities to pursue these jobs, these jobs still require a certain personality type. And I think these careers kind of it all have the same uh, attractiveness to certain personality types. You know, people that are always up, anxious, people that are always, you know, worried about the next thing. Uh, like you said, absolutes, um, you know, hard work, long hours, you know, results. Just like sort of like um, I'm going to give you an example when you talked about athletes retiring. Well, when I left the fire department, I feel to this day that I can't replace that. And it's not even about the money. It's just there's no job I can do that's going to fill that void that I used to do. I still think about sometimes, hey, I'd be a, I'm going to run another call one day. It's never going to happen. But when you look at, you know, mathematicians, maintenance, repairs, production, factory, architects, engineers, all of these computer programmers, audit engineers, I stated this once before where I don't, I'm not a fan of the corporate world because it seems like you, it, it never ends. You may finish something, but it's not really ever finished. Right. When you're in the fire department, what you do on that call is what you affect. You can put out the fire. You can save the patient. You can perform CPR and bring him back or not. You know, if you're a carpenter, you, you put in your work, you build, you know, you build a shelf, you build a bathroom, you see your work. It has an end. You may keep doing more work on other jobs, but you see the result of your labor. Right. And a lot of time, too, though, that can also make you lonely or hard to deal with because you're used to doing things your way and you're used to getting things done. 
and it's kind of hard to uh, <laughs> kind of shut it down, I guess the, the word is, to kind of shut off and to decompress from that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, I can, I'm going to move into how our mental illnesses affected us professionally. And there, a lot of, a lot of what you said a few minutes ago applies to me. It's, uh, or shit, a few seconds ago, which is, all right, I'm an IT professional. I deal with machines. I deal with computers, uh, servers, technology, technology, technology. I don't deal with people. Now, my, that, that's, would seem like a perfect fit for me because I don't like people. I don't talk to people. I avoid people. I generally despise people. And I mean, a lot, I I just don't do people. I'm secluded, isolated, a recluse. I don't go anywhere if there's going to be people there. So sounds like the perfect job, a job sitting in front of a computer all day in an office by myself, like perfect, right? No. It's not. This shit's miserable. Like, I fucking hate going to work because I go there. It's like every day. I said this before. Every day is Groundhog Day. You wake up. It's the same over and over. You get up, get dressed, go to work. I get to work about an hour, hour and a half late every day. Um, Sit in my office with the lights off, door closed. And majority, like 10 hours a day, I'm on the Internet. And I mean, I'm doing work, too, but 10 hours a day, I'm on the Internet, come home and Becky, um, she's here. My my fiance, she's here. But we what spend maybe an hour or two together watching TV or some shit. We don't really do anything because you're tired after work. You can't really you, you can't go out. We're not young anymore. We ain't going to parties and clubs and shit. So, yeah, majority of my life has been spent sitting in front of a computer with very little human interaction. That's sounds like the perfect job for my personality type, but it's really not because it it continues to it it feeds my mental illness basically. It it further isolates me and further secludes me from people. Uh Paul, how 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 did it affect you? It was uh it was gradual. When you're young you exciting, you think it's fun. As you get older, you start to realize, man, I don't want to run a call. I don't want to do this. Oh, I hope this call don't happen. I, I started to see myself on CPR saying, I hope this person don't come back because we didn't crack their ribs and got tubes all down their throat. Um, and so when you and then you can't take it home with you. So after a while, it starts to affect your sleep. It starts to affect your patterns, your your vigilance. You know, like I stated on a previous episode of, of Black Law, um, it's hard to cope when your battlefield is neighborhood, and that's kind of how it goes. You see things that remind you of bad instances, motorcycle crashes, and things like that. So as, after a while, everything around you becomes a, a trigger. Everything around you is, it reminds you of the issues that, you know, put you in the position you're in now. So that's, that's where it started with me, and it just grew worse from there. And even now today, we were talking about managing your, your disability. It's always evolving. It's never going to be the same. It's not going to be the same for very long. So the key is you got to stay on top of it and evolve with it. And even now, I haven't worked for eight years in the fire department, but I still have issues. And some of the issues have gotten even worse, even though the stressor has been removed. Yeah, man. I won. So on the on the notes here, I think I'm going to skip this because we were we were going to try to, to the best of our ability, recommend fields for other people suffering from mental illness. But 
there is no one size fits all. And I don't I don't want to be responsible for maybe encouraging somebody to do something that may further harm them. Uh, Paul, you how you feel about it? Yeah, I, I don't think there are some bits of advice you can take from us. <laughs> but, but that don't mean you should take all of our advice. And I know some people out there, they, and there's nothing wrong with this, where you want to seek people who may be able to relate and try to, you know, uh, kind of take their advice and roll with it. But it doesn't always work. I mean, I can give you a couple careers that I think may be okay, but I can also give you a reason also why those jobs would piss me off. <laughs> well, my issue, you know, I've I've even seen a list. They've, they've put teacher on there. They've put, uh, you know, personal trainer on there and it's like I, I'll be da- or they put psychologist one I'll be damned if I got problems and I'm listening to someone else two I'll be damned if I'm a personal trainer with my issues and nobody listens <laughs> and because nobody listens when you try to tell them how to work out and eat right and in the other one I saw was a um, emergency room nurse I really have no idea why they put that on a list of best jobs for people with anxiety because that's also on the top what 15 list of the jobs that most people kill themselves at. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's subjective. It, it's not once, like you said, one size fits all. It, it's, you're going to have to, like we stated earlier, you're going to have to identify your issues and look into yourself and figure out who you are. Cause I tell you what, after I left the fire department, it took me a couple of years to know who I was. And when I finally did that, things started to fall back into place and, even though it's an ongoing struggle, it, it does make things a lot easier when you can be honest about yourself because you can't fix your problems. You can't fix things or tend to things if you don't know what they are and you're unwilling to even acknowledge them. Yeah. And that, that is another problem that we do face in our community, even going back to the top of the show, talking about Mike Tyson and how our, you know, the black community, um, it's like, Oh, Mike's just crazy. Oh, he, he, he's, He's just fucking crazy. He's nuts. Like we we tend to do that. I forgot my train of thought. <laughs> God damn, man! Shit, I, f- I forgot what the fuck my point was. Now, man, damn. Mike Tyson is a civil rights icon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then then and then the Pharaoh said, "Let my people go." Like, man, what the fuck you talking about, Mike? Man, but anyway, I I mean I what I'll say is that that is a problem that we have in the black community as far as not acknowledging that's where I was going. Uh not acknowledging stuff. Um like I said about Mike Tyson at the top of the show, we're just like, Oh, that's Mike, he's crazy, he's crazy. You know what? Did anyone ever well I can say no one that I knew ever said, Damn, Mike probably needs some help, man. He's he he's going through it, man. Something's wrong with him. Nah, in the black community, we don't acknowledge it. Even my grandmother had one of her um one of her sisters called her and asked, uh, "Miss Dan's grandma or sister, does any of your kids have any mental problems?" Because you know, I, I'm trying to find out if what my kids are going through is genetic or if it's just them. My grandma told her with a straight face, nope, all my kids are fine. Ain't nothing wrong with none of my kids. Mentally, there is something wrong with every single one of my grandmother's kids and every single one of their grandchildren. And when I say something wrong, I mean 
mental mentally our shit a lot of it is genetic i mean some of mine is environmental but just the fact that my grandmother would tell her nah nothing's wrong with any of us we good over here we chilling we straight shit fuck wrong with y'all like that and that's how the black community does is they sweep shit under the rug everything's okay and we don't acknowledge it like paul just said so acknowledgement that that's huge man yeah if you don't acknowledge it you're not going anywhere you know, that's, the, that's often one of the hardest things for people to do is come to terms. Nope, look, the old saying, the truth hurts. It's, you know, they, the truth hurts is the truth. <laughs> and it's a saying for a reason. But, you know, one of the things that I, 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 I like to do is I like to try to be honest with myself. And, you know, a lot of times people don't want to hear criticism. But, you know, at the same time, too, I think if you wait for other people to tell you where you messed up, I think that you are not doing yourself a, serve, a good service. I think you need to be on. It's not easy. You know, but I think you really need to be on top of your actions, what you say, what you do, how you treat people, and move on. And if people do give you criticism, don't just get mad that yeah. you're wrong. Look, think about it for a second. You know, think about it. But that's the first step, and it's an ongoing process. And after a while, you kind of actually get uh, feel good, feel better when you can be honest about who you are because you can address the issue and improve it. Yeah, exactly. And I think I don't know if it was you or somebody else, but someone has a 24 hour rule, which is if I tell you something that may be perceived as a criticism or may not be something you want to hear rather than responding, they sit on it for 24 hours and then respond a day later after they've had time to think about what was said. And I'm like, damn, that that's a real good way to handle that. Yeah, I, I can't say that I actually put a time frame on it, but I do believe in that. You know, I, I got a philosophy personally where I don't respond when I'm angry because no matter how mad I may be, if you respond when you're angry, you're not going to say anything worthy, worth, worth being said. You're going to say something you're probably going to regret. So I, yeah, that's another key point. If you have, you know, mental issues, especially anger issues, keep your mouth shut when you're mad and don't talk again until you're not mad and you can think clearly. Because you do some stupid when you when you act off of emotion, you can really do some stupid things. Yeah. And what's crazy, too, is, you know what the consequences are. And you're like, I don't give a fuck that man. I, I've been there, too. Oh, <laughs> shit. So in my head, I typically, you know, before I do something that I'm all in on, I just say in my head. Oh, well, fuck it then. Let's go. <laughs> I've said that multiple times before, and it typically involves me either getting escorted out of somewhere or somebody saying I'm calling the cops. <laughs> yeah, man. And, and being a black man, I mean, shit, you already got that strike against yeah. you. These it's, days. Not, it's not really hard for, for the cops to be called. It, that sometimes is the first step before you even get mad. So uh, yeah. that's not exactly a hard response, you know, to, to get from a, uh, if you're a black person from somebody else. Exactly, man. Um, and last, the last uh, thing on the list here is tips for people dealing with people who have mental illness at work. So not necessarily tips for the mentally ill, but tips for people who are not mentally ill. When people have rough times at home outside of the job and they come in and th this goes for anybody. So someone has a breakup at home, a divorce, they find out their spouse is cheating or whatever, and they still have to come to work because they still have to make money. Right. Don't sit. Don't don't keep asking. Are you OK? Is something wrong? No, I know something's wrong with you. Just tell me. Just come on. What's wrong? What's wrong? 
don't do that shit, man. And women are good for that. I mean, not to single women out, but women are good for that shit. Men are just be like, hey, man, something wrong with that nigga over there. Stay away from him today. And that's what you need to do. <laughs> uh, Paul, any tips? Yeah, I think when somebody tells you they have a mental illness, believe them. Because I still don't like to tell people in my everyday life. One pet peeve of mine is people ask me, oh, what do you do for a living? First of all, I don't like that question, even if I still was working. Because why, why is that important, right? Um, but when I say I'm retired or I'm, on, I'm disabled or whatever, well, what happened? Don't ask somebody that. Yeah, I'm just going to give you that. Everyone listening. Even if it's not a mental illness, if you, some, if you ask someone what they do and then they say, oh, I'm retired or I'm disabled, don't ask them what happened. Because the thing I have with my issue is when you do tell people, they kind of look at you and they don't accept it. The next question is always, oh, so what are you going to do next? As if I, I'm obligated to fight through a, a debilitating issue just because to tell other people, hey, I'm still working. Um, right. Or another thing is, you know, don't make people <laughs> feel bad. Don't try to make people feel guilt or bad about whatever their issue may be and whatever things that may in, seem inconvenient to you. You got to understand that those same things that that person has to go through just to make it through the day is probably very inconvenient for them too, but they have to do it. Right. So you just got to be accepting, man. And I'm, you know, ultimately, I, me, I, I'm one person that I, I try not to put too much people at an inconvenience for me. I try to just be by myself when, when at all possible. But, um, Sometimes you just got to let people work through it. And, you know, going back to what you said about don't keep asking. This is not what I'm, I'm not talking about family here or close, close family. I'm talking about coworkers, acquaintances. I notice a lot of times people want to ask you what's wrong. So when you tell them, they can tell you why you're wrong for feeling that way. Not actually genuine concern. People always want to feel like they told you about yourself. Mm-hmm. People, all, it gives people some kind of power to make themselves feel like, yeah, I, I fixed him or, he was tripping. I told him, stop tripping. People ultimately just kind of, a lot of people just want to compare themselves to you. So they can talk about you behind your back. So my, my stance is a little bit different than Dan's based on my experience. I don't tell many people. You know, I lost everything because I told people that said, tell us, we'll help you. And I lost everything for it. So I'm still, I still just don't really answer the question when people ask me what my disability is because, you know, that kind of goes back to, like I said a minute ago, knowing yourself. If you know that you're not going to really appreciate someone's response or you can expect a certain funny look from people, it's best to just keep it to yourself if you feel like that's better for you. Because I'm one of those people that I, I will stew on things for a long time, especially things that are perceived insults. So it's easier for me to just avoid it altogether. Yeah. You know what a good response would be to that if people were to ask you, Hey, man, so what's your disability? Hey, man, sometimes I accidentally kill motherfuckers. <laughs> I bet you they won't ask nothing else. <laughs> Shit. Or say something gross, you know? Like, somebody asks you what's your disability, say, I can't shit without my intestines popping out. <laughs> That's happened. I ran this call. This lady, every time she would shit, her intestines would come out her ass. God damn. And I remember the first time I ran that call, and she was walking real fast. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's not expected conversation, but I got to throw it in there. Uh, she was walking to the ambulance and real strange. I'm like, what's wrong? And she didn't speak English, and her boyfriend or son or whatever told us that she had issues using the bathroom and her intestines was hanging out. And I said, oh, wow. <laughs> so you typically will look at it. I didn't. I called the medic, and the medic came and said, did you look? 
you know, would you would you see? I said, look, man, she said her intestines hanging out her ass. I'm just going to trust her and <laughs> take her to the hospital. And we ran her about three times. So, man, fuck. I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, <laughs> tell people that's your disability. <laughs> fuck that shit, man. Joe. <laughs> Like you got to leave that in the show, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to. But the thing is, now I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. If I were to shit and my intestines came out every time I shit, it, it shouldn't happen more than once, man. Like they ain't, <laughs> they ain't. I don't think you? it's supposed to happen once. <laughs> but I'm gonna tell you one thing. Ever since that day, I learned that that was an actual, real possibility that can happen. Yeah. I'm very careful, just because that's once again, <laughs> I got this. This fatalistic idea where I think everything terrible is going to happen. So, <laughs> Like, man, first I'm going to shit. My intestines going to come out. Then I'm going to pass out and my wife going to come in. <laughs> 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 What's that hanging out of your ass? <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. That's my chitlin. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> man. So this has been the first episode of... A few screws loose the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope that you walk a, walk away with something from it. And um, look, if you like the show, subscribe, leave us a review, um, tell a friend to tell a friend. Um, we're not expecting to have you know a huge number of listeners right off the top, but hopefully, you know, somebody can walk away with something that we said that would be helpful. Um. If you shit and your intestines come out, know that that's a real disability. Shit. So know that there are options for you. <laughs> yeah, like not shitting, man. <laughs> um, I'm Dan, and uh, you can find me on Twitter and IG at I am Dan on Drugs, and you can catch me every Tuesday over on the Black Law and Legalized podcast, and it's a more lighter version of me, kind of like what you just heard here. Uh, yo, P, where can the people find you? You can find me at Screws Loose Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. And also, periodically, occasionally, I am on Black Law with Dan on Drugs every now and then as a contributor. So uh, definitely, if you're not following that podcast, like Dan on Drugs just said, you better follow it. You're slipping. You're messing up. It's a lot of, it's a lot of back shows. You can listen to a huge catalog. You won't be disappointed. Anyway, peace out. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, We're open to any comments. Reach out. Shoot us a DM, email, a few screws loose. Shit. I don't know the email, but we'll get it to you once I get it figured out. Peace out.